hear the word of God from a selection of passages from Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, and the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, a gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them." And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after them and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Shabar Canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord of of the God of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Shabar Canal, and I knew they were cherubim. Each had four faces and each four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Shabar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in the city and have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat and the city is the cauldron, but you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword and I will bring sword upon you, declares the Lord God. And I will bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. 
The city shall not be your cauldron, cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, all those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, go far from the Lord. To us, this land is given for possession. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off from the nations and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when you have come there, they will remove it from all its detestable things and all its abominations, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give... And give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their heads, declares the Lord God. This is the word of the Lord. morning, Waypoint. You might be thinking, where's he going with that? Uh, well, tune in. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm a pastoral intern for, I guess, about the next six hours. Um, and I'll have a different title. Uh, well, it's nine o'clock. Never mind. Whatever. Later on. Um, not feeling 100% right now. Um, which is okay, because God's Word says His power is made perfect in weakness, and so I'm just giving the Holy Spirit an opportunity to make a highlight reel today, because uh, don't have it. Um, but I do just want to acknowledge the passages that we just read are heavy, right? And when I got assigned Ezekiel 8, 9, 10, and 11, uh, I read them quickly and came to the conclusion you all just did of like, wow, okay, this, okay, this isn't, you know... God loves everyone, and Jesus turned water to wine that one time, right? Um, no, this is, I mean, it's heavy stuff. It's, it's sin, it's idolatry, it's judgment, it's death. But if you'll stay with me, I really do think we're going to see incredible things about God's character, His love, His patience, and just, you know, kind of the same hunger or expectation that you would have if we were in, for example, the Gospel of Matthew Come with that same hunger and expectation to the book of Ezekiel, right? I get it, right? I'm not naive. Those books read a little bit differently, and, you know, one's a little bit easier to understand, perhaps. But, but I do want to encourage you guys. Yes, we have some heavy passages to come with today, but it's going to be awesome, okay? God's going to meet us. We're going to learn some things. So what is happening in those chapters, okay? I just want to give a brief kind of flyover of each chapter, and then really there's two kind of main points that... Uh, summarize the four chapters. So chapter 8, what happens there? Well, that's where Ezekiel gets, now this would be his second vision. So this is very, very similar to the one 
that he got two weeks ago. Well, not two weeks ago, but we preached about it two weeks ago with Pastor Lawrence uh, in the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, where it talks about someone with the appearance of a man with fire below his waist takes Ezekiel by the hair, and he is, quote, between earth and heaven. And he, he sees this vision that's happening in the temple of people worshiping idols, meaning people going to the temple where they're supposed to worship God, they're supposed to worship Yahweh in the temple, but they're worshiping false gods, they're worshiping idols they've made, and God is showing Ezekiel this vision, and there's particularly four different idols he shows him in chapter 8. And then in verse 18 in chapter 8, he says, Therefore, I will act in my wrath. It's this idea of, hey, this, this cannot stand. I can't let this idolatry in the temple go on. And then in chapter 9, that's where God says, okay, we need to make a distinction between those who sigh and groan over the abominations that are happening in the temple and those who don't. So basically, who's okay with the idolatry we're seeing in the temple and who's not? He says, those who are okay with it will be struck down, which is hard, but we'll unpack that. And even, I just want to encourage you, even at the end of chapter 9, Ezekiel, the prophet himself, the one seeing this vision, he even cries out, I think it's verse 15 maybe, and he says, are you going to take out the entire remnant of Jerusalem? Even Ezekiel is going, God, your righteous wrath towards sin and idolatry, it's, it's a little hard for me to grasp. Are, 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 you just, are you just going to take everyone out? Which, if you unpack that a little bit, implies most of the people were probably worshiping those idols. Because <laughs> Ezekiel didn't seem like he, uh, the people of God had much of a chance. And then so in chapter 10, essentially this is where God's glory leaves the temple. He says, I can't be here. If this is going to be the worship that's happening here, my holiness requires that I have to leave. Okay, so this kind of crazy, I think James or maybe Lawrence, you know, kind of coined this, the, the God-mobile, where there's like four, you know, different creatures and there's wheels, but the wheels only go one way and like, you know, they're led by God. Essentially, that thing rolls, okay? That thing's like, we can't be here in the temple if there's going to be this idolatry and this sin. It cannot be here, which is a big deal. And then in chapter 11, God starts holding people accountable. So this is God's judgment on the wicked counselors who were supposed to help God's people worship God in, I don't know, the temple. But they were not. They were allowing false worship idolatry to happen. And this comes to verse 12 where he says, For you have not walked in my statutes nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. Which, if you know anything about the Old Testament, that's a big no-no for the people of God. And then a glorious shift happens in the book, though. Okay? Despite all of that, despite everything I just laid out, God says, starting in verse 17 of chapter 11, he still wants to gather them from everywhere they've been sent, give them a land as a possession, which he had promised. He's going to remove the detestable things, the abominations. He's going to give them a new heart, a new spirit that he's going to put in them. Why? The why is me. That's not in the Bible. I, I, I inserted that. That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is amazing. So despite everything that was laid out, God still says, I still desire to be with them. 
I want to dwell with them. And I'm going to do what I have to do in order to make that a reality. So, two main takeaways from these four chapters in Ezekiel. First, sin and idolatry offend God and have consequences. That's probably 90% of the passages I've been assigned. Sin and idolatry offend God and have consequences. Two, God will change us and we will be his people. So let's start with number one, sin and idolatry offend God and have consequences. This is where, you know, you might start getting a little squeamish in your seat. Like, where's this guy going to go? You know, you're like, man, I invited somebody. This is the first time coming back to church. Golly, I should have came back another week. It's okay. Breathe. It's going to be fine. Um, because, good, Stanley. <laughs> um, so why does it offend God? kind of want to start there. And we'll talk about the consequences in a second. So think about it from God's kind of perspective, God's angle. He made these people, created them. He gives life to them, gives breath in their lungs. They're made in his image. He wants to be with them. He gives them his law. He gives them his statutes. He gives them prophets to help them obey all of those statutes and the laws that they have been given. But despite that, there's this constant theme throughout the Old Testament, and it still continues to this day, where God's people reject it. And they go their own way and they do what they want to do despite God lovingly saying, I want to be with you. Follow these laws, follow these statutes, listen to these prophets. And really, when you think about it from his perspective, human beings in relation to God and the created order are really distinct in the sense of we're the only thing that disobeys him. Some examples. Proverbs 8.29. This is an awesome verse. You should memorize it. When he assigned to the sea its limit that the waters might not transgress his command. Think about that. Pacific Ocean. Right there. Don't go further. Pacific Ocean's like, gotcha. Sounds good. Heard. You're the creator. No worries. Book of Jonah gives two awesome examples, right? He tells a, quote, great fish. Hey, go swallow my boy Jonah. But don't eat him. You got to spit him out in three days at a spot I tell you to spit him out at. What's the great fish say? All right, let's do it. You're God. I'm listening to you. Even in the book of Jonah, it talks about it was a particularly hot day. And then it says, the Lord appointed a plant to rise up that it might give Jonah some shade. Right? So again, it's this idea of, hey, plant, let's go. Jonah needs some shade. Plant's like, all right, you know, I do what you tell me to do. You're God. You know, okay, sounds good. Right? Jesus even tells his disciples, hey, do you guys know we could just tell a mountain to go into the sea and it would do it? You know that? I can do that. Actually, you can do that too if you have faith. And I could use more examples, but I'm just trying to give you this kind of picture of the created order obeys God. It does what it is told to do because God is in control of it. Human beings are the one thing that go, I don't think so. I'm okay. And the Pacific Ocean is going, what are you doing? Bold, bold move, sir. Um, but this offends God. 
Again, he created us in his image. He made us. He desires to be with us. He knows what will lead us to life, joy, hope, purpose. But you and I and the rest of humanity, we often go, I think I know what's going to lead me to life, joy, hope, and purpose. Maybe a little bit better than you do. I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. I don't know if I believe you. If you have kids, you might think of this when so I have two small toddlers. They don't really do this yet, but I'm sure it's coming. But kind of the question of why, you know, being asked a hundred times, right? Like, we need to do this. Why? We need to do this. Why? 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 Why is that frustrating? Well, because it eventually will get to its logical end, right, where there's some version of you saying, because I'm your dad and you need to trust me, right? It's like, and it's this idea of, you know, for example, with, I, we definitely did this with our kids crossing the street. And, you know, it's like Ruth, my, my three-year-old daughter, she's not getting into when she's asking why. It's not like she wants a research paper on accidents that have happened in Durham roads in the last 25 years, right? That's not what she's asking. But all I want her to, to get is, Ruth, trust me. I'm your dad. I'm not trying to hinder your joy. I'm trying to protect you trying to give you life, not take it from you. So listen to me, right? And you could even take it further and go, do I not give you food? Do I not give you shelter? Do I not care for you? Do I not, is there not clear evidence that I love you? And so if I'm asking you to, in this example, look both ways before you cross the street, can you trust me? And can you trust that this is good that I'm asking you to do this? And when she does it, right, if, you know, I can get a little cinema about my kids, you know. You know, there can be a little bit of me that's, like, hurt by that, right? And I'm like, man, she just blatantly didn't, like, does she not trust me, you know? So, again, think about it from God's perspective. When you and I continually go, I don't know if I trust you. I just kind of want to do my own thing, right? He's going, don't I love you? Didn't I make you? Am I not trustworthy? Do I not give you everything you need? Can you not trust me here? It offends God. And second, it has consequences. So throughout the whole Bible, there's a clear theme. In the Old Testament and in the New. That sin leads to death. So in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was put in place for the people of God. Essentially what that was was an animal, depending on what you could afford, that the sins of the people were placed on the animal, and that represented that that animal was now carrying those sins. That animal was then taken out of the camp and killed, was slaughtered. That represented the, the sins are now gone, they're out of the camp, and they've been dealt with as this animal has died. What was that communicating to the people of God then, and what ought it wake us up to today? Sin is bloody. It's messy. It takes life. It's not something to be trifled with. It's a big deal. And so, as we see what we saw in Ezekiel 9, this isn't just, you know, something God had a particularly hard day that day, right? And just kind of made a knee jerk reaction. No, sin has always been costly. It's always been deadly. And it's always been a big deal. 
Now, I know for some of us that might make us uncomfortable, right? I get it, right? I, I don't want to stand up here and be like, everyone just gets that, right? No, okay, I understand. But we, we kind of have this thought come up, right, where we go, God, can't you just kind of shrug it off? Right, can't, like, is it really that big of a deal? Can, you know, come on. Two, hopefully, analogies that help me with that, which hopefully will help you. So one, you might have heard this before, but it's the idea of the same sin, the same offense that you commit to someone is going to have different consequences depending on who that person is. Okay, so it's the exact same sin, it's the exact same offense, but depending on who it's against, it has radical different connotations. So for example, if I were to come to Waypoint's office and... You know, James Shafto, who did the prayer earlier, you know, him and I are, are, are peers. You know, we're, we're good friends, we're peers. And if I were to assault him in some way, let's say punch him for something, I wouldn't do that, you know. But if I did, what would happen? Well, you know, I probably am then going to be invited to a leadership council meeting the next day, you know. Uh, That's probably going to be about that. And, you know, I'm probably understanding, yeah, I might... Lose some ministry responsibilities, might, you know, lose my job, I don't know, but like, you know, it's not good. Now, let's say that didn't happen. Let's say I now do that, but it's Lawrence, okay? Same, same sin, same, you know, I, I punched with the same force or whatever, right? It's, it's, it's the same punch, but now it's Lawrence, who's my boss, right? So now it carries a little bit different weight, right? I'm not necessarily waiting for that leadership council meeting, I'm like, I can go ahead and take my uh, stuff off my desk. You know, I've, I've been fired. I'm gone. It's okay. You know, need, need, need to start looking at other places, right? If I were to do that with, you know, if, if the governor of North Carolina were here, I might start thinking, I might go to jail, right? Four, I might have just lost a friend. Now I lost a job. Now I might lose some of my freedom, right? Now I might, I might be going to jail. Now, Take it to the highest level in our country. If I were to do this to the president, I might lose my life, right? The Secret Service may not let me get to jail, right? And that's their job. Now, let's just think about it logically for a second. Let's put on our, you know, philosopher hat for a second. I had mine in my hand the whole time, thankfully. It's the exact same thing. It's the same punch, same force. To all people, right? In this case, a a bunch of men who are made in the image of God. But because of who they are, what they represent, we understand as a society, regardless of your political beliefs, religious beliefs, where you grew up, whatever, we all as a society would get, yeah, it makes sense that if you do it with James, you know, maybe it's okay, but you lose kind of some ministry responsibilities. But if you do it to the president, yeah, man, you, you might not make it out of there. And we just go, yeah, I get it. It makes sense. Because of who they are, the consequences change. So when we get to God, the highest that there is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, ought it not to make sense that he invokes the highest consequences. So when we have a hard time wrestling with this, and again, it's natural to... I think the question might be, well, who is God to you? Have you maybe put him on the peer level? He's just James. He ought to shrug it off. 
Come on, man. Just forgive him. Right? Or are you viewing him, this is who he is, and I have sinned against him. And I understand that has massive consequences for my life because of who he is. So that's one example. The other example would be kind of this connection between love and wrath, which we don't think about a lot. But in our day and age, you know, here, here we are in the triangle. Let's think about it like this. If I were to say, do you love Carolina basketball? Or maybe just UNC. And you say, yeah, I do. And then if you were to be like, but I, but I kind of like Duke too. You know, they're like my second favorite or whatever. I then would kind of respond with, huh. Then I, I, I don't know if you really love UNC. <laughs> right? And again, let's, let's put on our philosopher hat. I still got mine. What we're saying is you can kind of measure how much you love something by how much you hate what opposes it. Right? So do you love UNC? You ought to hate Duke. You, you, you ought to, like, like, they shouldn't even be anywhere near your list. Right? And flip-flop for if you're, if you're a Duke fan. Right? And it's this idea of if you truly love this thing, you will hate what a, you're going to hate the opposition to it. Because... You know, like, like you have this, well, I was about to say holy anger. I, I wouldn't say sports, you know, in the triangle warrants a holy anger. Uh, but you, you have this, you know, indignation toward, I, I despise that team, right? Why? Because I love this team, and they're against my team. And so this idea that we see here in the Bible is God loves us, and sin is what opposes us. We just talked about it. Sin leads to death. Sin will destroy us. Sin will destroy our relationships. It will take our life. So God hates it. Why? Because he's an angry God. Because he, because he loves you. And so we hate things that try to destroy you. Right? And again, we get this in our culture. Right? So again, we'll, we'll use a, a waypoint example. I brought in some coffee mugs. This is actually true. Uh, recently because, you know, we have 47 coffee mugs at our house. It doesn't make sense. Um, so I, I brought some in, and let's say, you know, Peter was drinking some coffee, and he broke a mug, right? And he was like, hey, man, broke that mug that you brought in. Not a big deal, right? I don't have much wrath towards that. Why? Because I don't have much love for the mug, right? It's a coffee mug, right? So, like, there's not this, like, oh, my God. It's like, dude, it's fine, you know? But again, it's like, I don't, I don't, I don't like, love the coffee mug. It's fine. Now, again, let's use a kid example. If I found out that someone was trying to harm my kids, you better believe I got some righteous wrath. Right? You better believe I'm going to have this absolute, you know, fury that hopefully will be constrained by the Holy Spirit in a way that's, you know, glorifying to the Lord. But again, Why? Because I love my kids deeply. And because I love them deeply, I hate anything that would try to destroy them. Anything that would bring them harm. Anything evil that may come upon them. You better believe I'm going to have this absolute anger towards anything which would try and harm them. Not because I'm a mean guy. Not because I'm out here seeking violence. Because I love my kids. So it is with God. He knows sin will destroy us. He knows it will kill us. So out of love, 
He hates sin. He can't let it stand. And even in the time in the book of Ezekiel, there were things going on like child sacrifice to false gods. So you can imagine that God is going, I, I, I can't let this stand. I can't, I, I can't see you take, I can't see you sacrifice children to this false god. I, I have to do something. Have to be moved to not let this stand. So that's the first point. Sin and idolatry offend God and have consequences. Despite that, though, there is point number two. God will change us. We will be his people. So God didn't leave the people in Ezekiel. He doesn't leave us now. Although he could have said, I've, I've tried with mankind over and over again. They keep messing up. They keep failing. But in, again, even in the book of Ezekiel, we see God is patient. He's compassionate. He's committed to his people. And he has a love for them. Again, from like 17 to 20, it's God promising, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to remove the idols. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. I want you to walk with me. I, I, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. So even in the Old Testament, what do we see? Human beings incapable of living up to the requirements God has put on them, but out of love and desire for communion with his creation, God moves toward them in love and does what they can't do for themselves. That sounds like something else I've heard before. In case you're not connecting the dots, let me connect them for you. John 1, 29. What does John say when he sees Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think about what we just talked about. Put the sins on the sacrificial lamb. He now carries the sins. Take the lamb outside the camp. You kill the lamb. You believe your sins have been forgiven. John sees God in the flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, and he says, there he is. This is the Lamb of God. He's come to take the sin of the world away. How's he going to do it, John? We know. He's going to be crucified. He's going to offer up his life. What, do we, what have we been seeing since Genesis? Sin is bloody. Sin is messy. You better believe it's going to take life. Took Jesus's. So what I'm trying to help you see is the same God in Ezekiel 11, providing for his people, desiring relationship with him, saying, I will do it. I'll give you the new heart. I'll give you the new spirit. I, I, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I want to be with you. Is the same God who comes in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, goes to a cross and cries out, it is finished. He desires relationship with his people. And he will do that at great cost to himself. So as we wrap up this morning, I hope you've been encouraged by Ezekiel. I hope maybe you've been encouraged more than when you perhaps heard the scripture read. You, you thought you might be. But yes, sin is serious. Absolutely. It's a big deal. It's nothing to be trifled with. It has consequences, sure. And we see that in Ezekiel. But there's also a God who is loving, who's patient, who 
was ready to do whatever is necessary in order to be with his people. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it takes something like seeing the prophet Ezekiel to maybe wake us up a little bit to how serious it is, how much you hate it, and how much we ought to maybe think a little bit more intentionally about it in our life. God, I pray for people who are here this morning who maybe haven't seen you as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God, I pray that they would be in awe, that you would move towards your creation in love, die die on a cross for them, just like the people in the book of Ezekiel should have been shocked that you would desire to be with them and would give them a new heart and give them a new spirit. So God, I I pray that you would move in a powerful way in this worship service. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we have the joy of coming to the Lord's table in response. In Hebrews 10, it says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. That word there, sincere, it means real, authentic. Could we say a heart of flesh? With the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us together, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful." This morning, as we come to the table of the Lord, we remember these words that he who promised to give a heart of flesh, to take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, he is faithful. And so this morning, we recognize that this meal, this table is a feast for the forgiven, for those who have received the good news of Jesus, that there is hope beyond the consequences of our sin, and he welcomes us to come. And scripture tells us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it with his disciples, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of many. And then in 1 Corinthians, it says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
That's the same word proclaim that it says in Acts 13 of what Paul did in the synagogues. And so as we come to the table this morning, I'm enlisting you as the body of Christ to proclaim the gospel. That we have access to God through the sacrifice of Jesus. And he invites us to come. So at this time, I want to invite our servers and our worship team to go ahead and come forward. And in a moment, uh, we'll put some brief instructions on the screen, but it's simple. Um, You can come to the middle aisles, and there will be four stations up front. And as you come, one of the things that we believe as a church is that this is uh, more than an object lesson, but it's not a magical snack. Uh, This is something that Jesus has given us to remember his death, to celebrate his presence, and to anticipate his coming kingdom. So if you are a believer in Jesus this morning, we invite you to come. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you welcome us even though we turned our back on you. And so, God, as we come and take this bread and drink this cup, we want to preach the gospel not only to ourselves, but to each other this morning. And let us hold unswervingly to this promise that he who promised is faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to come as you are led.